with me, if you will, to Romans chapter 1. Suppose that this week sometime uh, you begin feeling bad, and it continues on for a couple of weeks, and you're lethargic, you have no appetite, just not feeling yourself at all. And so you call and make an appointment with a doctor. And you go into the doctor's office and it's sleek and modern and the latest music from the number one pop group in the world is pulsating through the speakers and everyone is cheery and upbeat. And you go into the doctor and he comes bounding in and he's just, wow, what an awesome day, man. This is great, isn't it? And he doesn't take your temperature. He doesn't check your heartbeat. He just says, man, this is awesome. How are you feeling? Yeah, well, I'm not feeling good. I don't have much appetite. I'm down. You know, he, oh, listen, you just need to have a positive attitude. Listen, your best life is right now. You need to know that. You need to know that, brother. You need to understand how wonderful life is. Don't you see the sun is shining? Birds are singing. Wonderful. It's awesome. And so, okay, that helps you a little bit. So you go away from the doctor's office, and, and for a few weeks, you do feel better. I mean, you diet and exercise, and you listen to the music, and everything's just wonderful. Six, seven weeks go by, you're feeling worse than you were before. And so you make an appointment, but this time you make it with another doctor. And you go in, office is kind of drab, you know, they got elevator music playing, you know, Channel 69, Escape from Sirius XM. You know, what old people listen to. And uh, you go in, and the doctor, he's kind of old. He's gray-headed, kind of a gloomy Gus. Well, he doesn't talk about how awesome you are. He checks your bodily functions, blood pressure, heart rate, temperature, orders up some tests, and then he tells you, Mr. Kerr, I'm, I'm terribly sorry, but you have a rare form of cancer. That is what's causing your problem. And uh, there is a cure for this cancer. It's 100% effective, but we've waited too late. If we had just caught you about a month ago, we could have cured your cancer. But now there is no cure. You're going to die, and it's going to be a horribly painful death. I'm, I'm very, very sorry. I wish I had seen you a month ago. Now, let me ask you a question. Who's the best doctor? Who's the doctor you really want to go to? I said last week, these verses of Scripture are pretty much ignored in the modern church today. Not many, not many churches are going to be telling you about the first three chapters of Romans because they are depressing. It talks about how vile and how wretched men are. Humanity itself. It talks about all manner of sin, and ultimately what it does is condemn the whole human race. Paul is going to say over in chapter 3, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Furthermore, he's going to say that the wages of sin is death, to be eternally separated from God. Now, remember our theme in Romans that is found in verses 16 and 17. All the way through Romans, you have to keep coming back to this. Keep coming back to this. Why is Paul giving this depressing picture 
of humanity. He says in verse 16, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Paul is saying everyone has this disease called sin and it kills 100% of humanity. And the only cure is the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is the power of God unto salvation to anyone who believes. For in it, a righteousness of God, a righteousness from God is revealed and you can receive it by faith. Sin kills everyone. Only those who believe the gospel, only those who put their faith and their trust in Jesus Christ can be cured of this. We looked last week at the entrance of sin in the world and the expressions of sin. We said that these verses detail uh, what theologians call total depravity. doesn't mean that everyone is guilty of all of these sins. There are a couple of sins in chapter 1 that I have not committed. But of course, James says, if you've broken the law in one point, you've broken it all, so it doesn't matter. Paul isn't saying that you're guilty of every sin in this list. He is saying, however, that sin is pervasive. And the whole human race is guilty of sin in thought and word and deed. And the only cure is the gospel of Jesus Christ. The only way for you to be cured of this sin problem is to believe that Jesus Christ died for your sins, he was buried, and he rose again the third day. No other cure. You, you have to understand, when you look at passages of Scripture like Romans 1, 2, and 3, that they are depressing because the situation of humanity is depressing. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And so Paul is simply pointing out the fact that everyone needs this gospel. Everyone. We usually divide sins, uh, I don't know, I, I would say maybe respectable and uh, disrespectable sins. You know, respectable sins, well, let's say disrespectable sins, sins that are not respectable. You know, that would include, what, murder and, and robbery and child molestation, uh, drunkenness, you know, things like that. Respectable sins, well, gossip, envy, covetousness, yeah, you know, not so serious. Paul says it doesn't matter whether these sins are committed by the moral Jew or the immoral Gentile, it alienates everyone from God, regardless. And the only cure is the gospel. So he begins to go down this list of sins. He begins with unrighteousness. This is the same word that he used back in verse 18. In Greek, it is a compositive negative term made up of the positive word for righteousness preceded by the negative particle alpha or A, giving it 
the, the sense of a negative. We do the same thing in English. A theist is one who believes in God. An atheist is one who does not believe in God. So he says these are people who are not righteous, literally. They're unjust, since what is right is determined by the law and the character of God. This term denotes everything that is opposed to the divine law and character. And it embraces all that follows. The next word is evil. Uh, uh, the word here is a general term for evil, ponera. Uh, it's translated fornication in some other places. This refers to the general inclination to evil that reigns throughout the world, that makes people take pleasure in vicious and unprofitable actions. And then the word covetousness, translated greed in other places. It, it's what God prohibits in the 10th uh, of the Ten Commandments, and it is the apparent basis of much of the world's economies today. It is the desire to always want a little bit more. Of course, that is not improper uh, in itself. That's not an improper ambition. There is a proper desire to improve yourself, particularly for the benefit of others. But that's not what's referred to in this term. This is the passion for more, to get more, to advance oneself even at the expense of of others. And then malice. That word refers to deliberate wickedness that delights in doing other people harm. That that takes pleasure in the pain and the deprivation of others. There there are twenty one terms for evil in these verses, but these first four, Paul says the human race is filled with them. What holds them together, it seems that these are basically sins committed against the property of other people. So it is contrary to their well-being. When we are supposed to love others as the second great commandment, all of these sins reflect a hatred for others. Uh, and then the word envy. Uh, Paul's already mentioned greed indicating that people seem never to be satisfied with what they have, but instead they clamor for more, often at the expense of others. But he goes even further here. Envy is related to greed, but it goes beyond that because it shows that the chief factor in our greed is jealousy over the fact that people have more. Uh, it is human nature, I think, to compare ourselves with others in many, many different ways. You know, if we are greedy, if we're envious, we're always envious of Jeff Bezos and Bill Gates. We don't envy some poor wretch on the streets of Mumbai who is ravaging or scavenging through the garbage cans to get enough to eat, you know. This, this sin is uh, wanting more, wanting what someone else has to enhance our lifestyle, or even worse, wanting something from someone that has less than we do. Uh, that was part of David's sin, you remember, with Bathsheba. Uh, and then murder. 
The, the Greek word for murder sounds a lot like the word for envy, which is probably why they appear together in a lot of the ancient texts. But they belong together naturally, for murder flows from envy. Remember that Cain's murder of his brother Abel was an example. John asked, why did he murder him? And he answers, because his own actions were evil and his brothers were righteous. He envied his brother. He envied the fact that his brother had brought the right sacrifice, the one that God had commanded. And he envied him and he killed him. Another early example, you remember in Genesis chapter 4, is Lamech, who killed a young man who insulted him, probably only verbally according to the text, and then he boasted about the deed. Now, probably we're all thinking here, well, this doesn't apply to me. I've, I've never murdered anyone. Well, remember said that Jesus said that murder is not just the outward taking of a life. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5 that hatred in the heart leads to murder. Uh, strife. The root meaning of this word is debate. But it, 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 over time it came to mean the bad side of a debate. A debate that did not particularly wanted to convince the opponent but to destroy him. It means quarreling and contention, wrangling. When we talk to others, when we talk to unbelievers, we must all always do so with a gentle and kind spirit and speak the truth in love. I was reminded of that this week. One of the great apologists of the last 100 years died last week, a man by the name of Ravi Zacharias. And he debated with atheists and Muslims and Hindus, different religions, no religions, all over the world, all over in college campuses all over the world. Uh, but he had such a gentle spirit. I remember one debate I was watching a few years back in a and a young graduate student got up and asked the question. They were talking about the presence of evil and why it's there and what a problem evil is. And the man stands up and says, I really don't understand why we're going all about all of this here. What does it matter? What does it really matter if there's evil out there in the world? How does it affect me personally? And with a smile on his face and a, very, uh, and, and a quiet voice, Robbie walked to the edge of the stage and looked at the young man and he said, do you lock your doors at night? <laughs> and the young man goes, uh, yeah. <laughs> he, he answered him. He really just blew away his argument, but he did it in such a sweet, kind way that the young man himself laughed. So we should be contending for the truth, but we always must speak the truth in love. And then deceit. He's going to return to this word when he sums up human depravity back in chapter 3, or over in chapter 3, verse 13. Uh, this denotes outright treachery. Uh, words used to uh, snare the unworthy for the deceiver's personal gain. Using my words so that I can gain something at the expense of others. Maliciousness comes from two words. It means bad, evil, worthless, or pernicious. Our word cacophony comes from this Greek root, a bad or a discordant sound. 
the other word is ethos, which means habit or custom, usage. So the word has the idea of customary, habitual, evil. The malicious person is one who is normally set against other people. He set out to harm them. And then gossips. Uh, in verse 29, there the, the last word in verse 29 of Romans 1. In every language, there are words that sound just like they are what they describe. It's, it's called onomatopoeia. Is the name of a noun that does that. But like an English word, buzz. Buzz sounds like a bzzz, you know, or hiss. Same, same thing. That's this kind of word in Greek. It sounds like a whisper. It refers to slanderous gossip that is often spread in secret. It's harmful to others' reputations. It's a deadly vice. It's interesting that the, the Hebrew word that denotes the... Uh, uh, murmuring of a snake charmer is translated in the Greek uh, version of the Old Testament by this, the verb form of this word to whisper. Uh, and then slanderer. Slander carries gossip one step further. Gossip is unleashed in secret. Slander is done openly. When you, you slander someone in front of others, the word literally means to speak against someone or to defame Someone, And then haters of God. First glance, that seems out of place because we're talking about the, the sins that are against other men. But I think what Paul is saying here, I think it's in a proper place. He's saying people who, who, who slander men don't stop there. They, they slander God. Uh, human beings who are uh, adept at slandering other human beings ultimately... They slander God. And that's what they did here. Remember back in verse 28, it says, they did not see fit to acknowledge God. And I said last week, that word see fit uh, was used as an essayer's term to determine the, the, the genuineness of metal. Well, these people have, they have assayed God. They have uh, examined God and said, no, we don't approve of it. We don't approve of it. Most people don't see themselves as haters of God. They just see themselves as those who just ignore God. But to ignore God is to hate Him. Uh, you cannot be neutral. And this is the essence of insolence and of arrogance. Um, nowhere do men show their hatred for God more than in their condescending attitudes towards Him. That they do not approve of Him. They examine Him but they just don't approve of it. Insolent. This is the great Greek word hubris. Uh, it means pride, but it's a special kind of pride. It is a pride that sets human beings against God. The Greeks regarded this as the greatest of flaws. No translation can actually convey the full meaning of this word. But insolent uh, or despiteful comes close. Haughty. This word is also translated arrogant in some places. It's interesting, I think, that we've come to a place in our culture today where pride and arrogance are considered a virtue. The more prideful, the more insolent, the more arrogant that a person is, the more they are looked up to. 
if they are belligerent and ugly and unkind and ungracious, then they're looked up to. Arrogance arises from a feeling of personal superiority, um, regards others with a haughtiness that they are to be looked down upon or talked down to. Um, those who have a puffed up high opinion of themselves and they disregard others. Boastful. Boasting is based on pride. Um, it is to seek admiration by claiming to be or have what one does not actually have or possess. Uh, then inventors of evil, real creativity, of course, belongs to God. Only God can create. We just rearrange the material that he's created. But there is one place where man excels, and that's in inventing new ways to do evil. There are no new sins in the world, I don't suppose, but we do create all kinds of ways to do them uh, that are new. You know, we, we create ways to sin because the old ways are too slow, they're too unproductive, they're too dull. So we find a way to do it better in all kinds of areas. Disobedient to parents. People say, well, that's one thing that characterizes our day. Apparently, it's characterized every day. Apparently, every age of man, this has been a characteristic of people because it is, remember, the fifth commandment that tells us that we are to honor our father and our mother. Paul says it's the first commandment with a promise. Uh, I think it is interesting to note the clamor among the uh, intelligentsia, among the liberals today, who are clamoring uh, to protect the welfare of America's children. What does that mean exactly? America doesn't have any children. Americans have children. When you talk about talking about protecting the welfare of America's children, you're saying the state can do a better job of raising children than their parents can. It is just another way of undermining parental authority uh, that is clearly given in the Bible to parents. Foolish. I said last week, the primary, the primary reason that people do not believe in God is not intellectual. There is, there is abundant evidence of God in nature, in the creation. The primary reason that people do not believe in God is they're fools, moral fools. It's always a moral sense. Uh, in Psalm 14 where it says, the fool has said in his heart there is no God, that's the word for a moral fool, not intellectual. I, I will be the first to admit that there are many atheists who are brilliant people, brilliant thinkers. But they will not submit themselves to God because they don't want anyone telling them how to live their lives. Thank you very much. And God is going to do that. Faithless. This word is not built on the Greek word for faith. Rather, um, it's a word that means to put or to place. And it, actually, the word is used in the, the breaking of an appointment or a, or a covenant. So breaking faith is the idea people who can't be trusted they tell you one thing they do another they are heartless without natural affection 
parents who abandon their children. Not natural for a parent to abandon their children. Uh, abortion. Not natural for a mother to kill her own child. That's, that's unnatural. That's, that's heartless. And then ruthless. Implacable or unmerciful. Literally the, mean, the word means without mercy. Uh, the ancient world, of course, was a world in many ways without mercy. Gladiators fighting in the arena. And yet, we are a culture and a society that by and large is without mercy. Heartless. Cruelty is at the, in the heart of even the most gentle of human beings. Now again, Paul isn't saying that every society is marked by being full of all of these sins. The point is, I think, is to give examples to show that every form of evil, whatever it is, has to do with God, with failing to approve of Him, with falling away from Him, with failing to love Him above all things. What did Jesus say? What's the first and the greatest commandment? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. And the second is like unto it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You commit all of these sins which are primarily against your neighbor because, first of all, you don't love God. And then finally, verse 32 gives us the last of these sins. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. Perfect description of our society today. People know God's moral standards through conscience or through a general sense of right and wrong. Maybe they know about the Ten Commandments. But even though God's Word threatens eternal death for those who do such things, for those who break these commandments, sinners cast off all restraint. And they not only do them, but they heartily approve of those who do them as well. They're happy to see other people sinning. Look at most of our entertainment today. It, it's people in adulterous situations. And we glorify it. It's a wonderful thing. It's funny. It's hilarious. The more profane, the more disobedient, the more rude a child is on a sitcom, the more laughs it generates. The whole gay pride movement is a flagrant example of people who engage in the sin and those who encourage it, those who approve of it. What a, what a tragedy. It's like the doctor, again, we started with the doctor who is all upbeat and positive, but he doesn't tell you that, that this will kill you, that this will kill you eternally. We, we pay homage today to celebrities and to politicians who embody all of these things. We talk about how wonderful they are. What is wrong with us? What is wrong with us is what's always been wrong with humanity since the, big, since the fall. We're sinners. All of us are sinners. We, we may point at one of these sins and say, oh, I don't do that one. Well, do you do the other one? Then you are just as guilty. Maybe we like to point out the fact that we are not homosexuals. Oh, but are you a gossip? Are you guilty of slander? Are you guilty of envy? 
Do you not realize that that separates you from God as much as homosexuality does? Do you not realize that that makes you as worthy of an eternal hell as a child molester? Do you not see that? The problem here is sin. And the only cure is the gospel. Again, I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. For in it there is a righteousness from God that comes from faith to faith. Faith from first to last. If all we had were these verses in Romans 1, what a depressing picture it would be. It would be awful. For in it, it's, it's like a mirror. We see ourselves. We see our culture. We see our society. All of these sins go down to the heart level. And, and mere reform will not get down to the heart level. We need a solution that goes to the heart level. We need a new heart. And the gospel of Jesus Christ does just that. It changes our hearts. It is the power of God unto salvation. What Romans 8, 1, 18 through 32 does is it shows us that God's wrath against our sin is justified. We all deserve judgment. But what it also does, it leads us to the good news. That there is a cure for sin to be found in the gospel. So I conclude by asking you, have you trusted in Jesus Christ to save you from the wrath of God? Will you repent of your sin? Will you believe in him? Will you believe that he died for your sins? And he was buried and he rose from the dead and on the, on the third day. And for those of you who are Christians, those of you who believe that, are you applying the gospel to your life every day so that you may put to death and overcome these sins that characterize a world without God? Let's pray.